really is good to see you and good to be back. Amazing how time flies when you have time off. Have you noticed that? We had a really good uh, holidays, enjoyed the time with our daughters as always, and we stuck in a vacation this time around, which was fun. We don't usually do that in December. We went to Utah and uh, did some snowmobiling and skiing and horseback riding and just generally, you know, looked at the snow, which was fun because we don't get a ton of it down here. But when we were going through the airport, it reminded me, I remembered a story, a true story that I read a few years back about a companion animal. You know, we see the companion dogs, they're a dime a dozen now, uh, but I read about a pig that traveled on U.S. airways a few years back. Uh, true story. Six-hour flight from Philadelphia to Seattle, this pig rode as a companion pet for two of the first-class passengers. First-class passengers. Imagine having a pig up there with you in first class. And it was funny, after takeoff, the pig began sort of roaming around first class and rubbing its nose on people's legs and asking, begging for food, basically. And uh, this was all kind of cute until the plane started to land and the pig panicked and burst out of first class and ran squealing down the aisle of coach. Just picture that. You're in coach, which is where most of us usually sit, and down the aisle comes this squealing pig, you know, running 90 miles an hour as the plane is landing. When they did get the plane finally on the ground and the pig under control, it took four attendants to get this pig, usher this pig out into the terminal. After the event, uh, the U.S. Airways spokesman that, uh, whose job it was to comment on this made this statement, and I love it. He said, we can confirm that the pig traveled, and we can confirm that it will never happen again. <laughs> I read that and I thought, you know what, at one time or another, each of us has done something that seemed like a really good idea at the time. Um, bringing a pig on into first class probably wouldn't have crossed my mind but we've done things, all done things, that we thought at the time, you know, this is a pretty good idea. And then after the fact, when the pig starts squealing and running down the aisle of our lives, we make the statement, that will never happen again. Sometimes it's because we've learned a hard lesson, um, like taking a pig on a plane or going to a restaurant that was bad or uh, dealing with a person that we thought was going to be pleasant but ended up being a real, real challenge. Whatever it was, uh, when we go through those experiences that are so difficult, we decide, you know what, that's never going to happen again. And it's one thing to, um, to laugh about a pig on a plane or a restaurant or even dealing with a person that's hard to, hard to be with when it's a one-and-done event. But when you were raised for example, in a context where you were told, here's how religious people act. And when you don't act like that, you're shamed. 
Or let's say that you, uh, you were involved in a marriage that for whatever reason ended and you came out of that relationship or out of the pain of that relationship and decided, uh, you know, that, that, that will never happen again. The shame that we carry through life from decisions that we make or decisions that are made to us, isn't it interesting how we can have it both ways? In the sense that we can feel shame, not only from sins we've committed, but shame from sins that have been committed to us. Or shame from a context in which, for example, we grew up in a religious context where we were shamed because we didn't toe the line or wear the uniform or do what spiritual people do. Let's look together at in the Bible at the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah. These minor prophets that we're working our way through, taking just a single message from each book of the Old Testament, we're now in the minor prophets and Zephaniah, honestly, I can't ever remember a time that I've heard a lesson from this book and yet um, what encouragement it offers, as do all the prophets, about the context of which, in which they were given. Because the context, though it may seem a little far-fetched to us living in 21st century North America, is still very relevant to us because, as Paul wrote, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and righteousness, and Zephaniah does all of those for us. Zephaniah chapter 3 is where we're going to look. The book of Zephaniah is primarily about a, an event, a future event, called the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord, when you read it in the scriptures, could re refer to one of two events. If we want to call it this uh, with a little d, day with a little d, is just God intervening in history in any point in time. Now, usually it's either for blessing or more often we think of it in the context of judgment. The day of the Lord represents judgment. But the day of the Lord with a big D is the day of the Lord that Zephaniah is referring to, and that is the future, the yet future judgment that we understand by the big context of Scripture as the second coming of Jesus Christ when Christ comes to earth and the day of the Lord is the judgment on the unbelieving nations that have surrounded uh, Israel, or Jerusalem in particular. Zephaniah 3, the first four verses of this chapter, we won't read, but if you just scan over them, you can see that it's describing Jerusalem's sad state at this time. Remember, this is before the exile, before Jerusalem or, or, the, or Judah was taken into captivity, and these minor prophets had as, as their message, their primary message, a warning to repent so that the exile wouldn't have to happen. In these first four verses, the sad state of Jerusalem, she was unteachable, she was unspiritual, and her leaders had become corrupt. But then in verse 5, there's a pivot, and God contrasts Jerusalem with himself. Zephaniah 3, verse 5. The Lord is righteous within her. He will do no injustice. Every morning... He brings his justice to light. He does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. 
So Zephaniah is contrasting the corrupt citizens of Jerusalem with the righteousness of God. So obviously there's a huge contrast when, you, when you're contrasting that. We can see that in our own day. We can see that in our own hearts. But notice that there at the end of verse 5, there is a reference to God being just, but the unjust knows no shame. Typically, when we think of shame, uh, we think of its, of its definition. The definition of shame is basically a degrading, painful emotion that comes from an awareness of guilt, embarrassment, unworthiness, or disgrace. Shame basically stems from an awareness of sin, uh, a sin that affects you. And again, it's a sin that could be something you've done or that I've done or a sin that's done something that's done to us. Either way, we feel shame. Like if someone has been abused growing up as a child, they feel shame even though they are innocent. It's a shame that they feel on them because of sin that is done to them. And of course, when we sin, we feel shame as well. But we're told that these individuals here in Zephaniah 3.5, the unjust knows no shame, meaning, if we could use another word, they are shameless. They, they don't think about it. They don't think about their culpability before God. They have no awareness. They have no regret. They have no shame in the sense that they are shameless. And the Lord goes on to say in verses 6 and 7, that he calls out to his people to draw them back. You know, surely uh, you will revere me. Surely you will accept instruction, he goes on to say. And you would think, now in verse 8, as the, the beginning of verse 8 begins with the word therefore, you would think that God's going to say, therefore, here's how I'm going to judge my people as a result of their sin. But he doesn't take it that direction. Look at verse 8. The Lord says, therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I will rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. So it's kind of strange in light of the fact that Jerusalem is shameless, that God's first word is now, therefore, I'm going to take care of all the nations that surround you. Then what about Jerusalem? What about God's people? Well, what was impossible for God's people to do, God was going to do for them. That's why he says, wait for me. What are they waiting on? Well, look at verse 9. For then I will give to the people's purified lips that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring offerings. In that day, you will feel no shame because of all the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Now let's pause right there for a moment. Notice he uses the word again, no shame. And I've got the New American Standard, which translates no shame here in verse 11. The uh, verse 5, if you look back at verse 5, which we read a minute ago, also translates it, no shame. You may have a different translation, but hopefully the word shame in some form or fashion is in both of those verses. And there is an interesting contrast there between those two shames. 
The no shame of verse 5 refers to a, a person with flagrant sin in their heart who is shameless. But the person in verse 11 is the child of God or the believer of God who by their own can't come to God and be, and be innocent. So God's going to do for them what they can't do for themselves, and in that day, they will feel no shame, meaning they will not have sin that causes shame. So it's a different kind of no shame than verse 5. What was impossible for God's people to do on their own, God is going to do for them. Now, something is purified. If you think about it, he's going to give them purified lips, he says there in verse 9. Something is purified only when it, it, it needs purification. When we purify water, it's because we need it to be purified before we can drink it. We don't drink water that's not been purified. And for, to be in the presence of God, you have to be purified. God says he's going to take care of that. He's going to give them clean lips that they may call on the name of the Lord. And to have clean lips, you first of all got to have a clean heart. And the only way that can happen is by God. In fact, notice it says that it is God who has done it. God purifies their hearts from all their deeds which, they, which they rebelled against him. And thus, they will feel no shame. Their shame has been removed. Now, let's read. We stopped halfway through verse 11. Let's start at verse 11 again and keep going. And that day you will feel no shame because of all the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proud, exulting ones, and you will never again be haughty on my holy mountain. But I will leave among you a humble and lowly people, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths, for they will feed and lie down with no one to make them tremble. What a beautiful promise. Look closely at these verses because they are worth some examination. Notice it says that, 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 that the no shame comes as a result of God removing pride and leaving humility. Removing the proud and leaving a people who are humble. And it says thus, they will feel no shame. Their shame is removed. And, and that godly humility is described as a remnant that does no wrong, tells no lies, doesn't have a deceitful tongue. And notice it says that they eat and sleep in peace. They eat and sleep in peace or with no one to make them tremble. I read a, uh, a psychiatrist named Henry Evans one time said something that I thought was worth writing down. Henry Evans said, it's a cliche to ask what it takes to sleep at night, but honesty is most often the answer. When we are honest, we feel shame. When we are not honest, we feel shame for not meeting personal standards and guilt for breaking the rules of our consciences. When you rationalize, you are explaining things away to the conscience. There's a lot of hiding from yourself and a loss of awareness. You go around with the vague sense that something is wrong, but you don't quite know why because you have convinced your conscience that everything is okay. 
That is such an insightful statement. And it goes right along with what Zephaniah is teaching here. That Zephaniah, notice in these verses that we read, starting verse 11, really verse 12 and uh, through 12 and 13, it's speaking, it's linking having no shame with being honest. Honesty and a clear conscience. We can try to get around the shame that we feel in our hearts by rationalizing it or redefining it so that we feel better about ourselves. You know, a lot of times also, if you'll, if you'll look at self-help books, and even when spiritual books tend toward religion, if you go and read these books, most of the way that the world trials, tries to deal with a conscience that bothers them is by saying, just quit doing the bad things and start doing good things. Um, or to, or to, to weigh more good things in your life than there are bad things. And so you feel better about yourself. And while that may work for a time, the problem is you still did bad things. The bad things are still there to be dealt with. And no matter how many good things we can do in our lives, we can't shake the fact that we've all sinned. Romans 1 and 2 does a great job of, of showing why all people, even those people that don't regard the Bible, are justly condemned by God, even without a word of Scripture because they violate their own consciences, and we do it. Have you noticed that when you're driving on the highway, you are the standard of all things right? Those going faster than you are idiots. Those going slower than you, well, those faster than you are maniacs. Those slower than you are idiots. That we are the standard, and yet we will all often violate our own standards. Run stop signs, we'll speed, We'll go too slow when we're texting, when we're driving. All of a sudden, now we're, we have violated our own conscience. Driving is the easy, one, easy part. There are the same things we do in relationships, the same things we do in the privacy of our own hearts before the Lord, and we violate our consciences, and we are justly condemned apart from Christ. Zephaniah teaches us that the way to deal with the shame that we feel in, of the sin in our lives is honesty. Honesty. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, we, we need to form a line up here and have everyone come up and take turns being honest about all the sin that you've done. It's not that kind of honesty. It's talking about being honest with God, about calling a spade a spade, about the thing that maybe you did or the thing that maybe was done to you in years past that you've never really been honest before the Lord to come before him and to say, Lord, that was sin and I'm confessing it as sin and I want you to know that because of Christ, I believe that you have forgiven me. Zephaniah's use of the word shame has as its root meaning here, interesting, it goes back to the same word in Genesis chapter 2, where Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. It has the same root, the Hebrew root there. And it's always fascinated me. Have you ever wondered why nakedness is connected with shame? Because it wasn't always. I mean, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. 
So, you know, being naked was not uh, the same as being having shame. It wasn't until sin entered the picture that now somehow nakedness is connected with shame. So really, it isn't the nakedness that so much that is connected with shame, but sin is connected with shame because the sin was the X factor in causing shame to enter the world. And so if it's our sin that causes our shame, then to get rid of the shame that we feel, we've got to deal with sin. We've got to deal with the sin problem. And if we can effectively deal with the sin problem in our lives, first intellectually and also emotionally, then the shame that we have carried for years, like the pack on Pilgrim's Back and Pilgrim's Progress, you'll feel the straps loosening and all of a sudden the burden just falls off. It's a wonderful thing to happen. But I don't know if you've noticed it, but in your life, but in my life, that pack follows me. It's got legs. And I have to continually renew my mind about shame from past sins and shame from, from sins that have been done to me. I think about this in connection to Peter. Aren't you glad Peter is in the Bible? I mean, all the 12 disciples, you've, you've got some that are just there a lot, like Peter, like John. Um, Matthew's there quite a bit. But, you know, Bartholomew... We don't get a lot on Bartholomew. But Peter, boy, we've got lots on Peter. And we can learn a lot from Peter. And one of the wonderful lessons that I love about Peter is that Peter blew it. And Peter blew it badly. He sinned on the level of what we might call a big sin. But the reality is we all do that. You know, Peter's sin was just recorded in Scripture. I'm, I'm really glad there's not a, you know, a book of First Wayne. You know, that'd be bad. That'd be a bad book. That would not be a book I'd want to teach from uh, or a book that I would want you to read. But we've got Peter and we've got his epistles. We've got uh, especially the book of Mark that uh, does a good job of showing us what a weak man he was. And yet how the grace of Christ in Peter's life proved itself wonderful. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us this, but we know it's a fact that roosters crowed every day in Peter's life, every morning. They didn't just stop after Peter learned his lesson. Peter heard roosters the rest of his life. And I say that to say, you hear roosters too. And I hear roosters every day. Sometimes every morning we wake up to roosters that raucous reminder of our failure. And that's why I'm saying the pack has legs. It follows you. Those roosters, they'll chase you. And uh, you've got to daily pull out the hatchet and deal with that rooster, don't you? And I do too. Zephaniah is showing us we can do that. If we will, if we will remember, wait a minute, rooster, you're crowing because of a sin that I committed. I get it. You're trying to remind me of sin that I've committed. You're trying to bring that shame back on me for what I've done. But you've got to remember, deal with the sin. The sin issue's been dealt with. I have no reason to carry this burden. Now, keep your finger, if you would, here in Zephaniah, because Zephaniah is really talking to Israel. And the timeless truths there 
are true for us, but they're not quite as a direct connection as they are in the book of 1 John. So keep your finger there in Zephaniah and turn with me to 1 John, and let's look at a passage there, actually a few passages, that are very much connected to us with regard to this issue. As you're making your way to 1 John, think about the fact that when Adam and Eve sinned, and before, the, before they sinned, they were naked and unashamed, but when they sinned, they were ashamed, and what did they do to try to cover their shame? They, they, they hid, but they also started cutting fig leaves, didn't they, to take care of the nakedness. The nakedness wasn't the problem as much as what the nakedness represented, their shame over their sin. They weren't just covering their bodies. They were trying to cover their sin. And, but it didn't work because when God showed up, God started walking in the garden, they recognized the presence of the Lord and they hid from him. So the covering that they tried to do on their own for their sin was, wasn't effective. They still were hiding from God. Now, that lesson also goes into our lives, doesn't it? When we try to deal with the shame in our life any other way than the biblical way, we will find ourselves running from God and hiding from God but thankfully, God comes to find us. And he asks, as he asked Adam, Adam, where are you? Have you ever done that when reading Genesis? I put your own name in there. Try that the next time. Harry, where are you? This is not a question of uh, God's finger in your face. This is, this is a question of love. This is a question of God seeking to save the lost, just like Jesus did when he came to earth. 1 John chapter 1, um, we're going to look at several verses here again that connect with this issue of dealing with the shame in our lives. 1 John chapter 1, start in verse 6, if you would. 1 John 1, 6. John writes, if we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. You know, John is a wonderful writer. I love the simplicity of his words. But, uh, boy, have you ever tried to outline First John? John's almost just a... Uh, I don't know, I wouldn't call him ADD, but uh, reading some of his writing is like, you know, I sort of understand what you're saying, but how does that connect with what you just said? Reading 1 John is like reading someone who is just, his, his mind is all over the place. 
Uh, it's tough. It's tough to chart First John. It's tough to try to outline First John. And this passage that we've just read is sort of like that. So we're not going to try to explain the connections between all these passages, but I think the meaning of them is enough there on the surface where we can get some great encouragement. He talks about forgiveness, and he talks about fellowship, and these are important here because there are two types of forgiveness. I hope that you realize that as a Christian, because it is essential that you do, and it's essential that I do. There are two types of forgiveness for all uh, Christians. The first is the, the type of forgiveness that is needed by Everybody, and we can even say unbelievers, and that is the forgiveness of sins. This is an eternal forgiveness. This is the, the forgiveness that you get when you place your faith in Jesus initially. You realize, wow, I can't earn my way to heaven. It's got to be only through the grace of Jesus Christ. And your sins are forgiven. Your name is in the book of life, and it's a done deal. Boom, you're saved once and for all. Can't ever be taken away. That's the first type of forgiveness. It's something that everybody needs. The second type of forgiveness is not for unbelievers. It's for believers. It's for us. And it has nothing to do with the forgiveness that we just talked about. It's a forgiveness of fellowship. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say that um, Kathy and I are having a conversation, and I say something that is pretty selfish and pretty rude. Now, this is just hypothetical. This doesn't, this doesn't happen. But let's just say hypothetically that I do that. Um, then, now there's a breach of fellowship. She's still my wife. That, that's not going to change. But that sin that I've committed has to be dealt with for fellowship to be restored and for dinner to happen. So these, this gets, it gets really practical very fast. But you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't change our relationship in the sense of the fact that we're still married, but it does change our fellowship until I come clean. Maybe a father-daughter illustration would be a little more helpful. Your, your father, or you as a son or as a daughter, if you've done something to offend your parent, there's nothing you could ever do that would change the fact that they're your parent. That was taken care of at birth. But your fellowship needs restoration. It's the same with our Father. Once we were born again, our Heavenly Father. Once we're born again, we're born again. Nothing can ever change that. He is our Father forever. But when we sin, there is a breach in fellowship that has to be restored. This is what John is talking about here. And when we sin and we feel shame, it is this issue that we have to deal with. When he says, if we, have, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in the darkness, if we've sinned, then we lie. We don't have fellowship with him. Instead, we're, we're not practicing the truth. So the solution is very simple, he says here in verse 9. It's the same thing Zephaniah said. Be honest. Verse 9, if we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. But notice also, not merely to forgive us the sins that we confess, but also and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, if we come clean with the Lord on what we are aware of in our lives, God doesn't just merely forgive us of the sin that we've confessed. He 
cleanses us from all unrighteousness that would jeopardize our fellowship. It may be that you did something you don't even realize has jeopardized your fellowship with God. But the moment that you confess what you are aware of, God immediately takes care of the, of the fellowship issue and you are back in fellowship with God. And theologically, when we run this through our shame through this grid, the pack should fall off our back because there's no sin to separate us from God. We've confessed it, and he's cleansed us from all unrighteousness. There's no shame that we need to feel because there's nothing that causes the shame. The sin has been removed, and our fellowship is restored, complete fellowship, 100%. And it's so important to remember this. When Satan or anything else, any other type of rooster begins crowing in your life, remember this, this truth. Now, you're in 1 John 1. Look down at uh, chapter 2, verse 25. Chapter 2, 20, starting at 25. John writes, This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Now pause there for a moment. Look at those two verses. John says a similar thing in chapter 5, verse 13. It's a much more well-known verse. These things I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's saying the same thing here in uh, 2.25. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. This is the promise that he has made to you and to me who believe in Christ, eternal life. In other words, John says, there are two types of forgiveness, and by the way, uh, this first one is a done deal. You've got it. It's God's promise to you eternal life. In fact, he says there in verse 26, I'm, I'm telling you this because there's those who are going to try to deceive you, who are going to try to make you think you don't have it. But remember, God's promise to us is that we have eternal life. Keep reading, verse 27. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him. And, and let me just pause for a second. If you take the whole theological uh, concept of abiding in Christ from John 15, from all the writings of John, essentially to abide in him means to obey. If you obey him, you are remaining in fellowship with him. So to abide in him is to choose to obey him and remain in fellowship with him. Verse 28, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So John is saying, basically, just as there are two types of forgiveness, so there are two types of judgment. Two types of forgiveness, one for the unbeliever and one for the believer. So there are also two types of judgment, one for the unbeliever and one for the believer. The, uh, it's a concept that I hope that as we just sort of touch it, 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 it makes sense and that there's not a lot of unanswered questions for you. But... If there are, feel free to, to ask. But the two types of 
our judgment are are basically the great white throne judgment, which the book of Revelation talks about for unbelievers. This is a judgment where people are going to be judged on their works for salvation. And of course, nobody passes. Everybody, the book of Revelation, that it's judged at the great white throne is cast into the lake of fire. That's a judgment for unbelievers, and it is a horrible future for them. But there's also a judgment for Christians. It's not the judgment we just talked about. That judgment for heaven and hell was taken care of on the cross. The judgment for Christians is the judgment that happens after Christ comes for us. Uh, we call it the rapture. And uh, the, the Apostle Paul refers to it as the judgment seat of Christ. And it's a judgment for rewards. It's a judgment for rewards. And John says here that we, we never, to, to say that we remain in fellowship with him doesn't mean that we never sin, but that we deal with sin biblically, as he's already told us how to do there at the end of chapter 1. Now, we're told that we can anticipate this coming of Christ with confidence. Look at verse 28 again. Little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Now, keep that in mind and turn to the next chapter and look at how John expands on this just a little more. In chapter 4, verse 15. Chapter 4, verse 15. John writes, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us, God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God and God in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are, so also are we in this world. What does that mean? I love the way Charles Ryrie explains it. In fact, if you've got a Ryrie study Bible, it's right at the bottom of the page. I'm going to read the note that he has on this verse here. He says, The believer who has practiced love during his earthly life will be able to approach the judgment seat of Christ without any shame. Such assurance is not presumption, because, and then he quotes, As he is, so also are we in this world. In other words, we are like Christ when we love like Christ. I know that probably gets a little deeper than we have time to get into today, and I confess to you there are aspects of this truth that I don't fully understand, so I'm not going to pretend that I do. But there, are, there is an aspect here that is very helpful for us to remember, and that is this. We don't have to fear standing before Christ on that day. If we just make sure that each day with him we are honest, with our confessions, and trusting, as we're told in 1 John 1, 9, that, that if we confess what we know, then God's going to take care of all unrighteousness. And that is such good news, that we can look forward to standing before the judgment seat of Christ, that, that, that day that we are judged for rewards, not for sin. Sin was taken care of on the cross, but the day of rewards, we can anticipate that, that we can stand before him with confidence because of the promise that he's made to us. Well, from our lesson today, I really just have one principle of application, and it's pretty packed, so I'm going to repeat it a time or two for you if you are one who likes to write them down. But it's simply this. 
Only the death and resurrection of Jesus provides the potential. Let me pause there and repeat it again. Only the death and resurrection of Jesus provides the potential to reveal and to heal our shameful secrets. Only the death and resurrection of Jesus provides the potential to reveal and to heal our shameful secrets. And I say potential because it's our choice if we're going to accept that. We can carry the shame of our sin around with us, but we don't have to. If we understand that our shame is rooted in sin, either sin that we've done or sin that's done to us, the secret to let that pack fall off our back is to deal with the issue of the sin. Sometimes that's a one-and-done deal by simply praying. Sometimes that takes a long time in the sense of uh, understanding that sin, like maybe going to a counselor and saying, look, and talking through your childhood or, or, or whatever is causing the shame. But essentially, it's helpful to remember that because Jesus only requires us to trust in Christ for forgiveness, and then as believers, we're only required to confess our sin. Um, and, and I love it, too, that when we do, we confess in a context of unconditional love. We're not having to confess before a God who's standing there with his hands on his hips, just waiting to squash us. This is the God that sought Adam and Eve in the garden. Where are you? This is the God that came in the person of Jesus Christ to seek and save the lost, that dealt with the sins of these 12 disciples for three and a half years, knowing their hearts and yet loving them anyway and giving them chance after chance to grow, just like he does with us. I love it each Christmas when the uh, Israeli Prime Minister, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, has done this for the past, I don't know how many years, and I always enjoy watching his Christmas greeting to Christians. Have you ever seen it? It'd be easy to, it'd be easy to Google and find. But he does it like every year, and it's fun to watch because he, he says something like, um, uh, you know, Christmas, uh, I'm, I'm giving you Christmas greetings, you know, basically in your own words, peace on earth and goodwill to men. And we here in Israel are doing our part to uh, bring peace on earth and goodwill to men. And then he goes on to tell all the things that he's doing to keep Israel safe and why Israel is a bastion of peace. And it is. But when I hear that, I always smile because I think, you know, Benjamin, uh, what you're quoting is the angel announcing the Messiah to Israel. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's because Jesus came. And it won't it be wonderful when the nation of Israel makes that announcement again <laughs> by truly believing in the Messiah as opposed to just maybe it being a little PR to get Christian tourists to come back. One day, though, Israel is going to believe, and this is what Zephaniah predicts. Well, flip back, if you would, to Zephaniah, and let's finish up there with a few more verses. Zephaniah chapter 3. The Jews of Zephaniah's day didn't know it, but... Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, coming to Israel, was the solution 
was the answer to what Zephaniah was predicting. We left off in verse 13. Let's pick up again in verse 14. Zephaniah writes, Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. This is a prediction, a prophecy of Christ coming, the second coming of Jesus. You will fear disaster no more. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. So again, this is a a prediction looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ and to the repentance of the nation Israel and believing. It's what uh, I believe Zechariah says, that they will look on him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. It's what Paul says in the book of Romans when he says, and so all Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. All Israel will be saved because they believe in the Messiah. First coming, they didn't. They rejected him. Second coming, it's going to click. And the Messiah is going to come to Israel and they will be saved. Verse 19 uh, to the end, last two verses. Behold, I am going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame gather the outcast, and now look at this line, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord." What's going to be true of Israel in the future is potentially true for us today in the sense that the shame, this wonderful truth, is that the Lord doesn't just accept us as we are. He changes us. He changed. He promises to change their shame into praise. And it's the same with us. He's changing our shame. This is what was true about us into praise. That's what will be true about us. Now, I can look around in this room, and I know all of you personally, and so I can say with relative confidence, you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. But I can look out there in Zoom land and maybe not know everybody who's there or those who will be looking at this in time future. And there may be a place in your life where you realize, you know what? I've never placed my faith in Christ. I've been carrying shame of my sin because my sin has never been dealt with in that sense. Well, that's where you need to begin, by realizing that Christ has completely paid for your sins and you have no need, if you will believe in him, to carry that sin any longer. But for the rest of us, the lingering message here is to deal with those roosters to deal with those reminders every day of the shame of what we've done in the past. And we've all got them. We've all got them. Uh, I heard one pastor say one time, (laughs) I love this, he said, if you knew about me what I know about me, you wouldn't be sitting there listening to me. (laughs) And if I knew about you what you knew about you 
we would never have let you in the door. So it's good that only the Lord knows the true, true shameful secrets or history of our past. But the good news is the one who knows the depth of our hearts knows far deeper than what we think we know. He knows the depravity that is much, much deeper than even we're aware of. And he has forgiven us to the core of our being. And, and I love this. Whenever I hear the rooster, one, I try to get real theological because emotions have to start with theology. They have to start with truth. And remember, wait a minute, wait a minute, rooster. I hear you. But my righteousness is not based on what you are barking at me about. You are barking at me about sin I've committed, about what I've done. My righteousness is not based on me doing bad or good. My righteousness has been given to me. It's been imputed to me because of my faith in Christ. And so what you're saying of me isn't even true any longer because it's been placed on Jesus Christ on the cross. The righteousness, the good feeling I have is not because of what I've done or what I promise to do or what I vow to do this year, but it's because of what Christ has already done. And the righteousness given is the righteousness that's a gift by his grace. Only the death and resurrection of Jesus provides the potential to reveal and to heal our shameful secrets. Let's pray. Our Father, how grateful we are for Zephaniah's encouraging words. Words written to Israel and a nation that even to this day has not accepted the Messiah, but one day, one day your word shows that they will look on the, the one that they have pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. That one day all Israel will be saved because they will believe in the Messiah. Father, we can't thank you enough that you have allowed us, those Gentile nations, to have exposure to the grace of God through Jesus Christ and have opened our eyes and quickened our heart to realize our need for Christ and that the shame that we have carried for years through our lives we need to no longer carry because you have removed its source on the cross. Father, you know the, the, the need of each person. You know whether it's an initial saving faith or whether it's simply a matter of dealing with fellowship. But thank you that whether the need is salvation or a fellowship, you can give us that complete restoration through Jesus. Thank you for his grace. Thank you for his life, death, and resurrection and his coming uh, to, to get us again and to take us to heaven to be with him forever. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.